Recording in progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parasha. It is a very special personal birthday edition. Personal birthday. My birthday edition of DPP. 23rd day of Shvat. This year it falls out on January 25th. I will say that when I became Bar Mitzvah, my birthday also fell out, my Hebrew birthday fell out on a Tuesday. And I remember that I, so for my first, my first Aliyah, the first time I got called to the Torah, so you get called to the Torah after you're 13. You read the Torah Mondays, Thursdays, and Shabbat, Saturday mornings, and Saturday afternoons also. So the first time I could have the opportunity to get called to the Torah was on a Thursday, because my birthday was on a Tuesday. I had missed Monday. I was not yet bar mitzvah. And so traveled into New York, into Crown Heights, Thursday, just kind of recalling the bar mitzvah. And I remember that Thursday morning of this week, this Torah portion, Mishpatim, is when I got my aliyah. I wonder if I can pull up a picture to show you guys. Maybe you've seen the picture before. Maybe you haven't. I think it would be um, kind of cool if I can pull it up here. Um, a second. Let's see. Yep. Oh, where are the originals? Hmm. Okay, well, either way, this is not the best quality picture. It's watermarked. But if y'all want to see. Yeah, I do. Yes. You guys want to see? Yes. I yeah, all right. Well, it's, it's happening. <laughs> Ready or not? Definitely, we want to see. Here all we in favor, go. Say I. Oh, wow. Oh, that was me, wow. little kid, Amazing. Wow. 13 years old. Really? I got, wow. I got the. Uh, Justin looks so much like you. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Oh wow! So that is me. Um, I got called to the Torah. There, uh, so on Mondays and Thursdays, you only do three small, very short readings. On Shabbat, you do the whole Torah portion. On when uh, Mondays and Thursdays, you only do like the you actually take the first reading and you divide it into three mini mini readings. So you call three people up to the Torah, usually a Kohen, a Levi, and a Yisrael. The Rebbe always got the Yisrael Aliyah, the third Aliyah. So for the Bar Mitzvah boys, you would either get Kohen or Levi. Trust me, I'm not a Levi. I still got Levi because <laughs> 770 runs by its own rules, right? They like, all right, I don't see any Kohen, no Kohen, no Levi. We'll call up the Bar Mitzvah boy. So that's how it ro that's how it rolls. Um, I actually have the original of this picture. This is the one that I took from... This is what I got from... Stop sharing for a second. Um, from Jem's website. But I definitely have it somewhere. Let's see where I can find it. Um, uh, give me a second. Bar Mitzvah picks. Oh, here we go. Ta-da. Okay. I wish I could pull this up in an easier way. But maybe this is fine. No, not, not great. Okay, hold on. Let me find another picture. There's no, oh yeah, there's me. Well, 
All right, I guess you got you got you got the gist. We'll do one more picture. One more picture. Okay, hold on. This is not. When was this? I'm trying to remember when this was. This was like a few weeks before that. When I got, I went, the Bar Mitzvah boys, upcoming Bar Mitzvah boys had an opportunity to have a, um, not a private meeting with the Rebbe, because the Rebbe wasn't doing private meetings then, in, 19, in 1992. This was a, um, kind of a larger gathering. But let me show you a picture from that occasion of me getting a dollar from the Rebbe before my birthday. You see my grandfather. Remember my grandfather? Oh, um, yes. Remember him? Standing behind yes. me. There's the Rebbe sitting down in the chair. Rabbi Groner, who was one of the Rebbe's secretaries, um, used to, he helped, he gave the Rebbe the dollars to then give out. Um, Rabbi Harlig in the top left corner, he's still around. Um, yeah. Okay, all right, so that's the nostalgia. Now we can, now we can study some Torah. We got, we got the, thank, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Of course, very, of course. Very nice. Of course. So it just reminded me of the, because it falls out the same, same kvias, the same setup as my bar mitzvah year, where it's the same Torah portion, Mishpatim, and Tuesday was my birthday, and that Thursday I went into New York. By Shabbos I was back in Pittsburgh and reading the Torah. Anyway, okay, it's, uh, it's, it's a few years ago, but it's um, certainly something I will remember forever. All right, let's jump into the Torah portion. As I mentioned, the portion this week is Mishpatim. I mentioned yesterday that this week's Torah portion um, is very different than anything we've seen up until now, from the beginning of the Torah up until now. Because up until now, it's always been narrative. It's always been stories. The story of creation, the story of the flood, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and... Joseph and Egypt and Moses and Exodus and that that kind of covers where we're up to. This Torah portion, for the very first time, it's it's law driven. It's it's kind of like a lot of the Torah, which will you know unfold subsequently. Very much legal, legalistic. Very much law driven. It's mishpatim. Mishpatim means laws. Specifically, the laws of the Torah that that could be perhaps defined as civil law. The laws that govern our interaction with others, that govern our um, creating a, a healthy, moral, upstanding society. And that's what this Torah portion is all about. It's not, primarily, it's not the chukim, the super rational laws. It's not the edus, which are the testimonial laws. It's the mishpat, the, the civil laws, the stuff that in a healthy, moral society, these laws more or less make sense. Um, but they didn't for humanity until Torah was given. But once we have them, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's jump in and let's, uh, let's, let's, let's read some Torah. We're up to the second reading. Torah reading from Mishpatim, reading 2, chapter 21. Okay, the Torah, the Torah um, continues a theme that it started yesterday, that we started yesterday, which is about the laws of slavery. And when I say slavery, it's not slavery the way we know it, indentured servitude. And the Torah uh, um, offers a, a, a very big measure of compassion and ethics and, and morality on top of this idea of indentured servitude, as we'll see right here. And should a man strike his manservant or his maidservant with a rod, and that one die under his hand, he shall surely be avenged. So the Torah right here, and this is the theme that we started yesterday, 
sets out this concept that is unheard of, that was unheard of, and that till today in some parts of the world is still unheard of, that someone who works for you in the context of a servant has rights and they cannot be done to whatever the master, so to speak, so the so-called master wishes. That's not kosher, it's not okay, it's not allowed. So, right, that person, if, if, if God forbid, one strikes their manservant or maidservant, the, the victim shall be avenged. But if he survives for a day or for two days, he shall not be avenged because he is his property. Now, what that means is, as the commentators explain, is that if there's just an injury, then it means that, of course, there's no capital punishment um, involved because it is not, it is not, a, um, it's not a capital crime. As far as whether or not that person goes free automatically upon getting abused, there are some indications in Torah and the laws are complicated about an automatic trigger that if somebody, God forbid, strikes a manservant or a maidservant and, and injures them, that could, in some cases, automatically trigger um, the release of that, of that individual. In other words, they're no longer permitted to be in that space. That type of abuse automatically triggers a freedom. And again, it's, 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 the, the laws are a little bit complicated. As I mentioned yesterday, I know I keep on referencing yesterday, right? but I, I did mention this yesterday because we got into this whole discussion and this whole category of laws um, in, 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 in quite, quite in depth. The Torah gives us a perspective to kind of wean us away from the way, the, the way that, that slavery and servitude what had been normalized in societies. There was a way, it was, it was considered normal that people should own other people and that they should do whatever they want. And certainly, certainly for the Jewish people, the children of Israel, having just been released from slavery, that was not going to fly. That's not okay. That's not kosher in God's book. And so we find here, not that, not that, the, not that the Torah rules out it entirely, but it, it, gives, a, it gives a framework that shifts it from being this, this, this horrific type of construct into something um, that, is, that is moral and ethical. And um, even if it's not ideal, as we read yesterday, it says if somebody wants to be a slave longer than six years, we actually, um, they're, they're actually, their ears are pierced because the message is they should not be wishing to be a slave to another human being. They should be um, living their own life and being of servitude to God. I mean, just a little bit of... Uh, of, of background on this. Okay. Rabbi, what does yes. it mean that he shall be avenged? What, what, what kind of, you know? Uh, you know? We would have to look up the Talmud on this and, and, and the elaborate halakhic discussion. The question is, what is the penalty? Um, I don't know. We would have to look it up to see exactly what the penalty is. But the point here is that it's not, you know, we can imagine that historically if someone had a slave no one cared. There were no, there were no laws regarding that. Whatever you wanted to do, you could do. They were yours to do whatever you want. And Torah says, no, that's not okay. Whatever the penalty is, there's a penalty, right? You're, you're going to pay the price. You can't do that. It's, it's a complete paradigm shift of how we look at this. At, let alone the fact that, that according to Jewish law, and it's not here, but according to Jewish law, we know that if somebody has a servant, they have to give them the same accommodations as, as, as you have, as the family has. They have to eat the same food that you have. You have to, to take care of them. If you only have one pillow, it says you have to give them the pillow and you sleep on the, you know, without a pillow. That's the level of, of, of ethics and morality that is demanded in the, in the Jewish system. Okay, verse 22. 
And should men quarrel and hit a pregnant woman? And she miscarries, but there is no fatality. In other words, she doesn't die, but she miscarries. He shall surely be punished. When the woman's husband makes demands of him, and he shall give restitution according to to the judge's orders. In other words, again, you can't do whatever you want. Torah demands that we create a lawful society. And part of being a lawful society, part of being a society governed by law and order is that if you injure someone, there are consequences. If you cause a miscarriage, there are consequences. There are consequences. So even if the mother survives the blow, right? So it's not a, obviously it's not a, you're not going to say that, that he murdered the woman. She, she wasn't murdered. She wasn't killed. She didn't die. But the fetus, the fe- there was a miscarriage. There's a penalty. There, there is, there is a, uh, there are consequences. The, the Torah clarifies verse 23, but if there is a fatality, in other words, if she does die, the pregnant woman, then you shall give a life for a life. And that means there's a possibility, of course, pending on the evidence and all the other factors involved in capital cases in Judaism, which we've, you know, we had a, we, we, we've talked about in another context. There's a potential for a capital punishment here, a life for a life. The, um, the ultimate crime is, uh, triggers potentially the ultimate penalty. And then the Torah continues with, I think it's a famous line, an eye for an eye. Not I think, I know it's a famous line. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Now, this is certainly very um, detailed, right? Everyone knows an eye for an eye. But tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, probably less lesser known as the as the as the verses roll on, I think uh, it gets a little bit less well-known. The way that our sages understand this is that unlike a life for a life, which is literally the possibility, possibility of capital punishment, taking a life for taking a life, the rest of these aren't meant to be understood literally. The rest of these are not meant to be understood in the most literal sense of if somebody... God forbid, knocks out someone else's eye, then their eye is knocked out. If someone knocks out a tooth, then the court knocks out the assailant's tooth. That's not the way it's understood. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is understood. This is something that's clarified in the Mishnah and the Talmud, i.e. in the oral Torah, the oral tradition, is that it is a monetary compensation. If someone someone injures someone else, God forbid, if someone injures someone else's eye, then they're on the hook for the value of that eye. However you appraise that value, and the Talmud discusses how you appraise the value, but its value is appraised, and that's what is the liability for the assailant. And a tooth, the same thing. The value of a tooth for a tooth. The value of a hand for a hand. The value of a foot for a foot, etc. I have a question. Yes. Um, there is no mention, uh, in other words, of, does it mean that if a woman miscarries, that that baby has no life. In other words, they're saying there's been no fatality. So- right. Good question. What it means is, 
and this is something that's clarified in the Mishnah and the Talmud um, regarding a situation where a woman's life is endangered by her pregnancy, where the halachic ruling is, um, is that you end, you terminate, you terminate the pregnancy to save the mother's life. We understand this. There's a bit of a fine line. Um, life, let's put it this way. As Rashi says, it's not a full life. The life of the fetus is not a full, it's not a, it's not the, it's not a full life in the sense of life of someone who is born. The, the distinction is, it's not an autonomous life. It's not a life of its own. It's a life that until birth is almost a part of the mother's life. The child, right? The, the, the life is, so then, yeah. So then are you saying that if, God forbid, the woman struck, she's pregnant, she miscarries, but the fetus survives, then none of this would apply. It's only if the fetus is, what if this fetus could have been born alive, but is born stillborn because of the blood? Yeah, that would be a penalty. There would be a penalty. And, okay. and my assumption, okay. and not my assumption, it's not considered to be a capital crime that would then trigger capital punishment because it's, it, it doesn't have that status, that same status of a, of a born life. When I say born, born alive, etc. But, but there is a penalty. And I would imagine it's, uh, there's a financial penalty involved here. Because, and, or maybe otherwise. Maybe there's, there's an, there are other forms of penalty. There's a penalty because there is some measure of life, even if it's not what we would call, I, I, I don't know what the right term is, full life or life post-birth, you know, on... A, not, the life is not viable outside right. of the mother. Right, right. So a life that is, right, when, the, when, the, when, a, when a child is born, then it has one category of life. Before that, it's another category. There's, it's, the, the, the reason why I'm kind of like talking around it is because there's a major dispute amongst the Rishonim about what Rashi says. Major dispute. Because Rambam, Maimonides, says something different. And some say Maimonides is disagreeing, and some say he's clarifying Rashi. There are a number of ways to look at this issue. What we know for a fact, let's talk about abortion for a second. What we know for a fact is that Halacha, the Talmud, clearly says this. If the mother's life is endangered, you abort the fetus. That is what, it's not a question in Jewish law. That's not a debate. It's not a debate. The question is why. That's the question. The question is why. Rashi says because the fetus is not a full and complete life until birth. That's what Rashi, that's what Ra Rashi says. Maimonides Rambam says because the fetus is considered to be a rodef. A rodef means a pursuer of life. Rodef means literally one who is chasing someone else to kill them. According to Maimonides, the fetus, not intentionally, not by choice, but the fetus, by virtue of the fact that the fetus is directly endangering the mother's life, the fetus is a de facto, I don't know if I'm using that correctly, but is essentially a rodef to the mother. Like any situation, if you see somebody, God forbid, chasing someone else to kill them, you're allowed to take out the assailant, even with lethal force if needed, 
to protect the innocent victim. In this case, the one posing the threat, in this specific case of the Talmud, the one posing the threat is the fetus. The one who, it, who stands to be harmed is the mother. Rambam says the fetus is a rodef. Now, that tells us something that perhaps we wouldn't have thought of otherwise, that a rodef could be unintentional, non-premeditated. It's not like we're saying the fetus somehow has malicious intent. It's not about intent. According to Rambam, it's not about intent. The fact is that party A poses a risk, a lethal, fatal risk to party B. Party A is, allow, is by halachic ruling, may be eliminated to eliminate the threat to party B. That's how Rambam looks at it. So the big question is, is Rambam, Maimonides, is Rambam disagreeing with Rashi, clarifying Rashi? Trust me, it's a ma- Both Rashi and Rambam are what we call Rishonim, early commentaries. They both lived around the 1100s or so. So, I mean, we're talking about authorities on, on Jewish law. The major question is, which one is it? And it makes a big difference. Depending on whether you go by Rashi or Rambam makes a very big difference. As we've done classes on this, I mean, it's been a number of years since we've done classes on this topic directly, but it becomes a, compl- it, it, it becomes a very, very real, practical, and complicated topic. But that's why I'm kind of skirting around it. Because the question really is, bottom line, does Judaism, Torah, consider, to be, to consider a fetus to be alive? It's a hard question to answer. Seemingly, according to Rashi, it's not full life. According to Rambam, maybe he says it is full life, right? According to Rambam, could be full life. So then how, how can you do, so how does uh, the Talmud say that you're allowed to do the abortion? Because a rodef. So rodef means a full life. You take out a full life even to save another life. So according to Rambam, we don't know if Rambam holds that a fetus is fully alive or not. I, I hope I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not losing anybody. But the point is, in this case, the person strikes, you know, he's striking the soul is within, right? The question is about the soul. That's a question itself. The soul is earmarked for, the, for, for that child, but for that individual. But is the soul integrated within the body yet? The answer is likely, according to this line of thinking, no, it's not yet integrated until birth. Even after birth, it's not fully integrated until uh, a naming. Even after that, it's not fully integrated until bar bar mitzvah. I even showed you the pictures. You saw the difference? When I, the, the second picture, the first picture, are totally different. Anyway, the point is, there's, the integration doesn't happen. It's not a one-time deal. It's a slow integration. It's like, you know, when did our minds develop? Well, which stage of development do you, are you thinking of? There's multiple stages. It's the same thing with the soul. So is a fetus alive? It's a hard question to answer. Depends on how you define life. I mean, literally, it, it depends. on What we see here clearly, though, is that the Torah does not apply the possibility for a capital punishment for inadvertently striking the pregnant woman and causing the miscarriage. By the way, that's also another element over here. It was inadvertent. In other words, it wasn't like the fellow was aiming for the, for the, for the woman. Does that imply that if he was, then there would, might be the possibility of, mis- of, of, uh, of capital punishment? That, that, may be, that's a, that might be an interesting question to, to look into. I don't believe so, but it's an interesting question to think of because the example that the Torah gives here clearly is one fellow is trying to strike another guy, but, I don't know, misses whatever, strikes the woman, she miscarries, and then it unfolds from there. So, 
look, this is mishpatim. This is the, the this is this is where the Talmud, you know, earns its keep. The Talmud takes all these cases and 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 analyzes them, analyzes the verses, analyzes the implication of what it says and what it doesn't say, and tries to come to some sort of conclusion. Um, this is also where the commentaries on the Talmud, you know, earn their keep, and where subsequent halachic discourse till this very day continues to unfold. There are very real practical questions in 2022 that emerge from this conversation, as you can imagine. So we're not, this is not an exhaustive conversation, but just, just so you know some of, the, some of the implications of all of these topics. Let's get back at, yeah, Ray. Hold on, don't, yeah. Uh, don't forget to unmute. Hold on. I just sent you an unmute link or request. There you okay, go. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when you say like um, a tooth for a tooth, a burn for a burn, are they chukim? Does that come under the category of like uh, milk and meat? Does that come under the same category? No, this no? is no, because this is financial. It's financial penalty. That makes sense. It's logical. Someone injures someone, it's logical that they have that there should be on the hook for it. Look, I mean, lahavdil. Not comparing a, a, a vase to a human being. If you break someone's stuff, you got to pay for it, right? You hurt someone, you, you got to pay for it. So a hand for a hand, a tooth for a tooth, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound is not literally. It's not like I, this is something that the Talmud is very, very quick to to clarify. It does not mean, God forbid, someone. Everyone say it. Someone burns someone else. You burn them. It's not what happens. Someone injury. You, you, there's a financial penalty. I mentioned yesterday. There's five, five um, categories of financial penalty. Nezek, tsar, riboyshev is boishes. Nezek is the damage itself. Tsar is the pain. There's you appraised. However, you there's an algorithm where you, the pain is somehow measured, and then there's a there's a number associated with that, a financial number. So that nezek is the damage itself, which we're talking about, right? The, the, the value of an eye or tooth, whatever, however that's appraised. The pain, the, the medical bills, lost wages, you know, they're out of work for a little bit or, or a while. Lost wages, you gotta, you're on the hook for. And embarrassment, like emotional damage, emotional harm. Um, all of that is in five layers of monetary compensation. Um, and all of that is included in what we're talking about here. An eye for an eye means the payment for what was, for the damage that was, uh, that was caused. Okay, the injury that was caused. Let's continue. Um, one thing that I should mention, it's only going to work in the Hebrew. Ayin. Um, you take the Hebrew word ayin, which means I, Ayin, which is spelled Ayin Yudnun. And you take the, the next letters of each of those letters, three letters, the next letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, I hope what I'm saying makes sense. Look, look, at, look at this word on the Hebrew side, right? Ayin. Okay? Yes. So you take the letter Ayin, which again, it just doesn't make it easier, the fact that the letter is actually called Ayin also, but whatever. Take the letter, that first letter. The next letter in the alphabet is Pei. So remember that, the letter Pei. Yud, the next letter is Kaf. Remember that. And Nun, the next letter is Samach. Uh, you take those three letters, you rearrange them, it spells the word Kesef. Kesef means? Money. Money. So, Ayin Tachat, Ayin Tachat is translated for or instead of, in exchange of, but Tachat could also mean under. 
Ayin, under Ayin, meaning the letters below the letters Ayin, spell the word Kesef, this is a hint, an allusion in Torah, that we're talking here not an eye for an eye, but the monetary value of an eye. I hope that makes sense. There's an allusion in the actual word that indicates that we're not talking about the eye, we're talking about the gelt, the money. Okay, that's, uh, that's a little bit of uh, Hebrew, Hebrew hints. All right, 26. This is what I mentioned. Hebrew word, wordy. Hebrew, yes. Yes. 26. Is it wordle? What is it? Wordy? Wordle? What is it called? I think it's wordle. Um, yeah? I have found words. I think it's wordle. I've been, uh, yeah. It's wordle. Wordle. I- I'm going to confess. I started checking out a few days ago. I'm three for three. I'm not. Bra- I'm just saying, it's uh, it's been an interesting adventure. I don't know how long it's gonna go, but it's yesterday's. I couldn't figure out yesterday's. What was that? Oh, yesterday's was uh, was Noel. K N O L L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was working on with C H I something, I must have been working on the day before. Maybe it was the day before. I've done the yesterday's was hard. Today's also, I'm not going to give anything away for today, currently, but it was, uh, anyway, let's continue. I, I've said too much. Verse number 20, oh no, sorry, verse 26. And if a man strikes the eye of his manservant or the eye of his maidservant and destroys it, oh, this is what I mentioned before, he shall set him free and return for his eye. In other words, you abuse, not you, if one abuses their, their manservant or maidservant, you're done. You're finished. Done. Finished. That's it. They're done. They, don't, they, they, they go free. That's it. End of story. And if he knocks out the tooth of his manservant or the tooth of his maidservant, she'll set him free and return for his tooth. You hurt the eye, you hurt the tooth, finished. Finished. You cause injury, you're done. We're done here. You, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but I'm still going to. I don't want to, but it's still going to happen. Um, the, the, the ethics that the Torah puts onto a very questionable arrangement is powerful precisely because it, it, it's existing in a very questionable arrangement. The Torah is taking something that is very murky, very ethically murky, and saying, number one, don't do it. It's not saying that, but it's saying that. We know that. We just had the Exodus. Right. This is not a good arrangement. So number one, don't do it. Number two, if you can't hold yourself back, you should know there are massive restrictions on this. Good luck. Okay, that's kind of the way the Torah is framing it. Let's continue. Let's go now to other forms of damage. Where the Torah, this Torah portion has tons of laws, just one after the next. <coughs> and if a bull gores a man or a woman, and that one dies, imagine a, a wild animal that kills a human being. Okay, the Torah says the bull shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. And the owner of the bull is clear. Okay, clear meaning off the hook. So again, just understand the simple example. The bull, by the way, it doesn't mean only if a bull does it. But what if somebody owns an exotic pet? You know, people own exotic pets. People own tigers. Yeah. Tiger King. I mean, to like bring up old Netflix uh, shows. Yeah, whatever. 
not going to ask who's familiar with Tiger King because that's is not that doesn't does we don't need to. I can tell by the smiles already. Here's the point. Here's the point. Um, somebody imagine somebody owns an exotic animal, or let's say a dangerous. You know, there are certain types of dogs that are very dangerous. And God forbid, God forbid, should never happen. Loyalino. The animal escapes, attacks, and mauls someone to death. Torah says that you apply capital punishment to that animal. I think even today, we have the same law. You would put down that animal. No, I think so. Yeah, that would be the first, um, first response. Now, Ubal Hashot. Now, the, the twist is, what if it's a kosher animal? You're going to say, well, you know what? Let's at least slaughter. If you're killing the animal, fine, let's slaughter it. And let's make a steak. No, the Torah says. No, that animal, done, done. Even though it's a kosher animal, I'm not talking about tigers now. The Torah gives the example of a bull, kosher animal. Torah says, even though you're going to kill it anyway, because it's capital punishment, it's not for eating. It's not for eating. Off limits. A clarification that the Torah gives us. Um, but the other element that's interesting, it says, Uvala Sharnaki. But the owner of the animal, in this case the ox or the, or the bull, the owner of the animal, Naki, is clean. He's, uh, he's off the hook. Why? The implication here is that the owner didn't know and reasonably could not have foreseen that the animal would have viciously attacked and killed a human being. If the assumption is the other way, then we have a bigger problem, okay? Which the Torah proceeds to describe. But if it is a habitually goring bull since yesterday and the day before yesterday, yeah? In other words, not, oh man, sorry about this. It's not its first rodeo. Sorry, had to, had to do that. I had, yeah, <laughs> there's no way that that wasn't going to happen. You went there just I, to celebrate your birthday, I, didn't you, Rabbi? I so went there. I so went there, right? If it's not its first rodeo with the goring business, right? And its owner had been warned, but he did not guard it, and it puts to death a man or a woman. The bull shall be stoned to death, and also its owner shall be put to death. Wow, that's big. If we're talking about such a level of negligence that you knew better, not you, that the owner knew better, and still he didn't do anything, then he's on the hook even potentially for capital punishment. Insofar as ransom shall be levied upon him, he shall give the redemption of his soul according to all that is levied upon him. Which doesn't make sense in English. I will, I will be very uh, upfront about that. that. That verse right there is not really comprehensible. Um, let's see if we have some clarification. We'll toggle Rashi. Um, the value of the damager, the owner of the Goring Bull... Oh, one second, one second, one second. Ah, okay, Rashi clarifies before. The owner shall be put to death by the hands of heaven, not through a court. When we said that the owner of the bull faces a capital punishment, it doesn't mean that the court actually tries him for murder, but Hashem is going to take care of business. Now, Rashi says, I might think that the verse means that he's liable to death by the hands of man through the court. Therefore, the Torah says, no, the assailant in numbers shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer, implying that for his act of murder, you must kill him, but not for his bull's act of murder. So we have another verse, just to clarify, we have another verse in Torah that tells us 
that it's only direct direct murder that 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 allows one to be eligible for the uh, capital punishment but not if one's animal if one's animal does it so there's heavenly justice of a capital nature but not through the human courts okay and what is this whole thing insofar as the ransom i would imagine since by in the court of law he's not actually put to death as we just clarified so there's a financial penalty that is applied and that is given to this owner. And then, of course, Hashem will take care of business. Okay. Or if it gores a young boy or a young girl, according to this ordinance, shall be done to him. If the bull gores a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give silver in the amount of 30 shekels to his master, and the bull shall be stoned. So again, still capital punishment. In this case, there's also a loss to the owner, to the master. So there's also a monetary payment. There's a double, there's a double penalty here. Um... The double penalty, both, there's a capital, there's both a capital punishment as well as monetary. By the way, this is a very unique situation. I don't know if it applies, I think I've done a class on this, but years ago, like maybe one of the first years that I was here, I, I don't, and I don't remember the answer in, in U.S. law, if when you have a, when you have a capital crime, do you also go after the money? Or do you just say, you know what, hey, listen, it's capital crime anyway, like forget the money. In, in Jewish law, there's something called which is when you have two punishments, you apply the greater one. Um, if there's a greater and a lesser punishment, you apply the greater one, and sometimes you don't apply the lesser one. In this case, it does seem the Torah is, 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 um, is describing a case where both penalties would be applicable. And, and really, the, the reason is because there's two different victims here. I just want to be clear here. I'm not equating them, but I'm just saying there are two victims. One is the one who lost their life. And, and you can't bring that person back. But, but for that, there's a capital punishment. And for the, the, the master, the owner of the slave, I mean, the, I, don't know, I even hate saying that word owner, the balabas, the master, let's say master, the master, there is a, um, there's a financial, I mean, there's a loss of work and productivity and all that stuff. So there's two, two different victims, not equating them, obviously not, certainly not, just to be very clear here. But there are still two two losses that have been that have been incurred, um, so there's two penalties. I would imagine the same thing applies in, in secular law. Although I, I wonder, you know, like God forbid, someone. I don't know. There have been cases where people were tried for capital murder. Yeah. And pending the outcome, if the outcome was not that of a guilty verdict, right. then they were sued in civil court right. for loss of life under civil penalty. Right, right. And that might be a, that's an interesting similarity. But I'm just even thinking, you know, God forbid, let's say somebody, God forbid, shoots someone else and through the car window, whatever it is. Like, are they being, are they ever on the hook for the window? I, I don't, I'm not asking this in a, in a, in a you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not asking this in a, in, a, in a sarcastic way. I'm asking it in a literal, like, I'm just wondering. Maybe no one cares about the window, maybe. But I'm just wondering, like, is that, yes. Karen. We actually talked about something like this. It was in one of the JLI courses where we did all of, we looked at these um, legal. The dilemma. The dilemma, right? That was like one of the best classes. Bra it was and, a great course. Breaking the window, like yeah. Somebody broke the window to steal the laptop or something like that. So you remember that? And there was a dog in the car. That was the key. It was the summer. 
they had left the owner had left a dog in the car that was suffocating and these 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 robbers went broke the window stole the laptop got busted can they turn around and say us liable we saved a life could they spin it like that or the terrorist who's got the arab terrorist who stabbed a jew in israel a few years ago and they rushed the jew to the hospital saved his life but in the process of the surgery discovered that this fellow had cancer or something and then they started him up like can you can the guy say hey i saved a life me so that i think it's a little bit different but you're it touches on these interesting dilemmas all right anyway this is more the objective here is not to get to a conclusion. You can't get to a conclusion without pages of of Talmud and then commentaries on the Talmud and then the halachic Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law text, and subsequent uh, responsa from modern day, you know, in modern day cases for this stuff. So we can't. There's no way you can you can pass. There's no way you can decide or arrive at Jewish law from the Torah text itself. It's way too. Cryptic it's and a matter of rabbi. It's a matter of intent. I mean, there's also an element. Yeah, there's also an element of intent. Correct. You could say, "What do you mean you saved a life? <laughs> That's not what you intended." Good, good. Intent also plays a factor. The point here is, and to me, the the thrilling part of all this is just look at at what the Torah opens up for us thinking along moral, ethical, legal, societal terms. It's unbelievable what the seeds that Torah plants here and the, the, the framework that's being developed here from this core of Torah. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. All right, let's jump back in because we still have a few more verses. Um, okay, next type of damage. If a person opens a pit, that means you dug a pit, or if a person digs a pit and does not cover it. Um, what's the difference? Oh, I'm sorry. Opens means opens, not digs. I'm sorry. Let me try this again. Persons open a pit. The pit already exists. Imagine like a, a, what do they call it? A manhole in the street? Yeah. Imagine if someone goes along one, one night and opens it, op- takes off the top. Yeah. Or imagine there's like a sidewalk construction with like planks of wood. Someone, you know, someone uh, causing trouble takes away the thing. Yeah. Or if a person digs it, from scratch and does not cover it. So either you uncover it, that's case A, or two, you dig it and don't cover it, and a bull or donkey falls into it. Now an animal is walking down the street and falls into it and breaks a leg, or whatever, or, or, or the animal dies. The owner of the pit, i.e. the one who dug it or opened it, shall pay. He shall return money to its owner and the dead body shall be his. Basically like this, let me give you a, a scenario. Let's say, Somebody digs a hole in the middle of the street and somebody's bull falls in and, and, and dies, let's just say. So there's liability. The one who dug the hole can't say, I didn't do anything. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do anything. The pit did it. <laughs> it's, it's called proximate damage. What do, mean, what do you mean you didn't do it? You, uh, maybe it's not proximate. It's, it's, it's indirect, but it's direct enough that, you're, that there's liability. That's what the Torah is teaching us. There is liability even though your hands didn't touch it. Even though your property didn't touch it, but you dug the hole. You're, you're at fault. You caused the problem, right? It's your fault. You have liability. So the dead body shall be his means. Okay, so if you pay for the ox, how much was the ox worth alive? A thousand dollars? Okay, so who gets the who gets the dead bot who gets the dead ox? 
because, I mean, without getting too detailed, you could still make money off a dead ox. You can sell it for the skin, for the this, for the that, for the other, right? Non-kosher meat, whatever it is. So what happens to that? So we say if, if, you, if you give the guy liability of $1,000, well, then he gets to keep the dead ox. You don't get your ox and the $1,000, right? You get, the, you get one or the other. I mean, what, like you get the full value, but then he gets to keep the, the dead body. All right. Let next, if a man's bull strikes his friend's bull. Now it's not bull on man. Now it's bull on bull, right? My bull gores your bull. My dog bites your dog. Well, okay, forget mine. All right. One person, person A, person B, and it dies. The victim, the, the, animal, the victim animal dies. They shall sell the live bull and divide the money received for it, and they shall also divide the dead body. The Talmud elaborates on this. Basically, you're on... The, there's a reason why the, the, the Torah talks about dividing the value. Either way, you're on the hook for, for, uh, for the value of, of, the, of the damage, of the injury, the death. Okay. Or if it was known that it was a habitually goring bull since yesterday and the day before yesterday and its owner does not watch it, he shall surely pay a bull for a bull and the dead body shall be his. Oh, so here, I'm sorry. Let me clarify. Verse 35 is, if it's the first time and you had no idea that this bull was going to cause any damage... Well, then the law is that you pay half the damage. Half the damage means that you only pay 50% of the damage that, um, that is incurred, or that, 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 of the, the value of the, of the dead animal. But if it was habitually goring since yesterday, the day before, if it's already gored a few times and it kills another animal, then you're on the hook for the whole, for the whole uh, loss. Okay, next, if a man steals a bull or a lamb and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five cattle for the bull or four sheep for the lamb. You got to actually pay, it, it goes exponentially. So let's say a person steals a bull worth, again, $1,000, but then slaughters it or sells it, basically traffics it, then you have to pay back $5,000. Why? I mean, there's, um, there's rationales associated with this, but there's, this is an additional penalty on top of just you know, returning the value. I st- you know, someone stole a $1,000 bull, you would think they should pay $1,000. No, in this case, if they slaughtered it or sold it, it's five, depending on the type of animal, it's either five times the value or four times the value that, is, uh, that, is, um, that, that, it, that they're on the hook for. So there's an additional penalty. Yeah, Joy, jump in. Um, the Rashi on number 34, the last... Yeah. Peace and the dead body shall be his. That is confusing. It kind of says the opposite of what you said. Well, which is not. We should not not expect that to happen, right? Especially if I'm not. <laughs> especially if I'm not toggling Rashi, right? So expect the unexpected. Let's see. The dead animal will belong to the one owner who sustained the damage. Interesting. They assess the carcass, and the owner takes it for its value. The damage or pays him in addition to the carcass payment for the damage. Yeah. Okay, but that's another way of doing it, basically. But what you would do in that case, if he wants to take the carcass. Let's say that okay. Let's let's do this. Let's make let's let's give numbers. Let's say the live animal is worth a thousand. The dead animal selling whatever you can sell. Let's say gets you a hundred dollars. So the owner of the animal, the dead animal, can take the carcass, and then the other guy's on the hook for nine hundred more. But if he gives him a thousand, then what happens to the animal? He doesn't can't double dip. Then that was my point. Rashi is giving a scenario where he gets to keep the animal, but then you don't give him a thousand on top of that. That would be like, that would be overpayment, right? I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not, it's not dissimilar to the way that our laws work. You know, if they, um, 
I don't want to compare the two. You know, if they total the car and they give you the value for the car, I don't think you get to keep the car and sell it for, for parts, do you? I don't think so. No? They total the car, they're going to sell it. They're going to make whatever they can get from it. You know, even scrap metal or, or sell the steering wheel or the seat or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, it's, it's their prerogative. If they're giving you the value, and of course, notoriously, you never get, which <laughs> it's such a racket. Whatever, that's another story. You never really get what you, what you, what you need. I've dealt with this before. We had a car. Anyway. Is there like a debtor's prison if these people can't find, they no. always find? No. If you can't pay it, then the way it works is you got you to just earn it and, and, and you just pay it off as it happens. That's also one of the scenarios in which there would have been this slavery servitude that we talked about at the beginning of the Torah portion. Yeah. You pay it off. It's basically, it's, it's the same concept as you go to the restaurant, you order everything for the menu, and then they come to you and you're like, I can't pay it. Start peeling potatoes. And it's, I mean, that's kind of the concept, but you know, a little bit more intense. Um, but no, there's no, de- there's no debtor's prison. And if a person refuses, you still can't force them. You can't force them by force. You can't, not beating up someone. It's not, it's not, it's not a valid way. All right, a few more verses, then we're going to close it out. So let's wrap it up. Uh, let's take it to the end. Let me toggle Rashi off for a moment. Flying through these verses. Okay, three more verses. Here we go. Exodus chapter 22. Oh, here we go. If while breaking in to a home, the thief is discovered and he is struck and dies, it is as if he has no blood. Okay, let me explain. If somebody's breaking into someone else's house and the, and the, and the, the, the homeowner fears for his life because the other guy, let's say, is armed and dangerous, etc., and you defend yourself by taking out the thief, it is as if he has no blood. In other words, it's not a, you're not a, it's not a capital crime. But if the sun shone upon him, i.e. if it's clear as day, that he was not going to harm him, he just wanted to steal, and he killed him, and, and, and the homeowner, the thief was not going to kill, but the homeowner killed the thief, then it is as if he has blood. He shall surely pay. If he has no money, he shall be sold for his theft. Well, okay, I feel like we're moving into another conversation. If the sun shone upon him as if he has blood is one thing. In other words, it's, you know the stand your ground laws or whatever it is, or castle laws? You can only defend with lethal force if you have a reason to believe that, there, that, that it, there's, a, there's a lethal threat here. If there's no lethal threat, you cannot use lethal force. That's, that's the law. That's here. One and a half verses worth of, of information. The next piece is, if somebody steals, he has to pay back. If he has no money, this is what you just said, Adina Malka. What if he has no money? So he should be sold for a theft. In other words, that's when this indentured servitude will kick in. If the stolen article is found in his possession, whether a bull, a donkey, or a lamb, live ones, a live one, he shall pay twofold. So this gives us another idea um, before we read about um, stealing a bull or a lamb and slaughtering or whatever, if it's alive, right, bull, donkey, lamb, whatever, then you're on the hook for two times the amount. So if it's $1,000, it's $2,000, 500 1000 etc. You just do the math. Okay, so I, you know, I, I'm not sure where, like, um, look, these are laws. So it's not the... Tonight, we have meditation at Sin- from Sinai. Tonight is going to be the spiritual conversation. This is a little bit you know, more legalistic, a little bit more legal. But what I, what I do think, what I said before, sorry, wrong, wrong button. What I do think is that within the legal, within the legal 
um, conversations, we do see something profound. That is a, a, another way to look at society. Another way to look at liability and therefore responsibility, not only regarding our own person, we cannot allow ourselves to harm someone else, but even regarding our animals, we cannot allow our animals to harm someone else. And even regarding the acts of carelessness, we dug a pit and we didn't properly cover it and someone fell in it. It's a problem. You know, the Torah later on talks about not placing a stumbling block in front of someone who can't see. The truth is we can't place a stumbling block in front of someone who can't see either, right? This is, this is not, it's not kosher to place a stumbling block. And so maybe that's where we'll, we'll, we're, where we'll end this. There are different types of, of harm that, we, that, is, that human beings might cause to each other. Some of it might be intentional and direct. Some of it might be unintentional and indirect. And the Torah is telling us that even if it's unintentional and indirect, we still have to be part of the healing process and clean up the mess that we've made. We might not have intended it. It might not be malicious. The one who dug the pit was not intending to cause havoc, was not waiting to see you know, who would fall in and what would fall in and, and, and hurt themselves, God forbid. It was somebody who was careless by all accounts. Someone who just, they dug a pit, they forgot to cover it, they took off the manhole cover, forgot to put it back on, whatever it was. It doesn't have to be malicious. But the bottom line is, if our actions ultimately cause harm, then there's responsibility. We have to take responsibility. And I think that is... Endangerment. Say it again? Reckless endangerment. Correct. Correct. And I think that heightens the level of personal responsibility, which speaks to Torah's vision of what a human being is and what a human being needs to be held accountable to or for. We are extremely, extremely uh, blessed. And we are, and I mean, just mean, as human beings, we, we are blessed. We have a mind and we have abilities that are, that are just unbelievable that are unsurpassed in creation. Okay, maybe we'll find other form, maybe one day we'll find something. But as of right now, looking around, we, we are tremendously gifted. But with that power comes responsibility. Every, every zchut, every merit comes with an achray, it comes with, an respons- comes with a responsibility, a commensurate responsibility. The greater the ability, the greater the responsibility. And so this reminds us to really redouble our efforts to take our responsibilities as human beings seriously and to think about how we, can, how we can utilize and leverage our abilities to make a, a positive difference in the world. If when the negative happens, if when we trigger negativity, it's attributed to us and we have to clean up the mess, then we know how much more so on the, on the positive level, how much more so our positivity, what, we un, what, what unfolds from us positively certainly is to our merit and our tremendous merit. And think about this, and this, I'll conclude with this. Someone is not really thinking, uncovers a pit, digs a pit, whatever, and someone gets hurt, it all goes back to, to the one who dug it. Think about the nice smile that we give to a stranger. Think about the act of kindness, the, you know, showing up for, for someone's birthday. Think about the, the impact that that has. And may we always remember the power that we have to bring joy into someone's life and to make a difference. Thank you very much. It's very meaningful. (laughs) And um, may we have many opportunities to celebrate together. 
Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you all. Thank you Thank for you. your teaching. Uh, happy birthday. Thank you very much. And Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you guys. Donna Herbert, happy birthday too. Oh, Donna, happy. Yes, Donna, happy birthday. Is today your birthday? Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, now we have to sing again. <laughs> Donna, happy birthday. Lots of blessings. Um, sending lots of love. Amazing. Beautiful. Great, great to share this day. Amazing. Beautiful. All right. We'll see you guys. Take care. Hope to see you guys tonight or Thursday. Take care, everybody. Okay. Awesome. Take care.